we continue with the opinion of the court in Amgen v. Sanofi. Part 2 The Constitution vests Congress with the power to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. Right there in the text, one finds the outline of what this court has called the patent bargain. In exchange for bringing new designs and technologies into the public domain through disclosure, so they may benefit all, an inventor receives a limited term of protection from competitive exploitation. Congress has exercised this authority from the start. The Patent Act of 1790 promised up to a 14-year monopoly to any applicant who invented or discovered any useful art, manufacture, or device, or any improvement therein not before known or used. Reflecting the quid pro quo premise of patent law, the statute required the applicant to deposit with the Secretary of State a specification so particular as not only to distinguish the invention or discovery from other things before known and used, but also to enable a workman or other person skilled in the art or manufacture to make, construct, or use the same. The statute made clear that this disclosure would ensure the public may have the full benefit of the invention or discovery after the expiration of the patent term. Even as Congress has revised the patent laws over time, it has left this enablement obligation largely intact. Section 111 of the current Patent Act provides that a patent application shall include a specification as prescribed by Section 112. Section 112, in turn, requires a specification to include a written description of the invention and the manner and process of making and using it in such full, clear, concise, and exact terms as to enable any person skilled in the art to make and use the same. So today, just as in 1790, the law secures for the public its benefit of the patent bargain by ensuring that upon the expiration of the patent, the knowledge of the invention inures to the people who are thus enabled without restriction to practice it. This court has addressed the enablement requirement on many prior occasions. While the technologies in these older cases may seem a world away from the antibody treatments of today, the decisions are no less instructive for it. Begin with Morse. While crossing the Atlantic Ocean in 1832 aboard a ship named Sully, Samuel Morse found himself in conversation with other passengers about experiments and discoveries around electromagnetism. In the course of this discussion, it occurred to Morse that by means of electricity, signs representing figures, letters, or words might be legibly written down at any distance. So clear was the idea in Morse's mind that before he landed in the United States, he had drawn out in his sketchbook the form of an instrument for electromagnetic telegraph. 
Immediately upon his arrival in New York, Morse showed his brothers his sketches. He spent the next few years refining his invention. The great difficulty he faced was that the galvanic current, however strong in the beginning, became gradually weaker as it advanced on the wire and was not strong enough to produce a mechanical effect after a certain distance. Morse had a solution. Combining two or more electric or galvanic circuits with independent batteries for the purpose of overcoming the diminished force of electromagnetism in long circuits. Morse demonstrated his telegraph the following year at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia, and he displayed it soon after in Congress. He received a patent in 1840, which reissued in 1848. The litigation that brought Morse before this court concerned a telegraphic system that Henry O'Reilly had installed between Louisville and Nashville. Morse sued O'Reilly for infringement, alleging that O'Reilly's system was identical with Morse's own. O'Reilly mounted a number of defenses, including that Morse's patent was void because it lacked an adequate specification. Morse's patent included eight claims, and this court had no trouble upholding seven of them, those limited to the telegraphic structures and systems he had designed. But the court paused on the eighth. That claim covered the essence of the invention which Morse described as the use of the motive power of the electric or galvanic current, however developed, for the marking or printing intelligible characters, signs, or letters at any distances. Leaving no doubt about this claim's scope, Morse stated plainly, quote, I do not propose to limit myself to the specific machinery or parts of machinery described in the foregoing specification and claims. The court held the eighth claim too broad and not warranted by law. The problem was that it covered all means of achieving telegraphic communication, yet Morse had not described how to make and use them all. If the eighth claim can be maintained, the court concluded, there was no necessity for any specification further than to say that he had discovered that, by using the motive power of electromagnetism, he could print intelligible characters at any distance. It will be admitted on all hands that no patent could have issued on such a specification. Consider, too, Incandescent Lamp, 1895. For much of the 19th century, gas lamps helped illuminate streets and supplemented candles inside homes, factories, offices, and theaters. But gas lighting had drawbacks. It took effort to ignite lamps each night and extinguish them each morning. Then there were the problems of soot and fumes. By the 1870s, many had experimented with other forms of lighting, including incandescence and the arc light. But these alternatives burned unreliably or with unbearable brightness. The latter problem in particular led one observer to lament this new sort of urban star which shines horrible, unearthly, obnoxious light. 
Enter Thomas Edison. From his laboratory in Menlo Park, Edison and a team toiled to improve on the prevailing method of incandescent lighting, which tended to employ carbon filaments. The problem with carbon filaments was that they disintegrated rapidly. In a sense, carbon contained in itself the elements of its own destruction. Seeking an alternative, Edison tinkered for a time with platinum, but it was expensive and difficult to bring to the point of incandescence without melting. Eventually, Edison dispatched men across the globe to collect specimens of bamboo. One sample from Japan worked brilliantly because its fibers ran more nearly parallel than in the other species of wood. Satisfied, Edison arranged to have a Japanese farmer supply all of the bamboo he would ever need. But there was a catch. William Sawyer and Albin Mann had obtained a patent for an electric lamp with an incandescing conductor made of carbonized fibrous or textile material, which they claimed was an improvement over conductors made of mineral or gas carbon. Sawyer and Mann's patent had not won them commercial success. They had designed a lamp with a conductor made of carbonized paper, but the lamp proved defective and quickly fell out of use. Still, their failure did not stop them from seeking to share in some of Edison's success. Sawyer and Mann alleged that Edison's lamp infringed their patent because it made use of a fibrous or textile material covered by the patent. What was that offending material? Bamboo. This court sided with Edison. It held that Sawyer and Mann's patent claimed much, but enabled little. Sawyer and Mann supposed they had discovered in carbonized paper the best material for an incandescent conductor. But instead of confining themselves to carbonized paper, as they might properly have done, and in fact did in their third claim, they made a broad claim for every fibrous and textile material. Even that broad claim might have been permissible, the court allowed, if Sawyer and Mann had disclosed a quality common to fibrous and textile substances that made them peculiarly adapted to incandescent lighting. Had they done so, others would have known how to select among such materials to make an operable lamp. But the record showed that most fibrous and textile materials failed to work. Only through painstaking experimentation did Edison discover that bamboo answered the required purpose. The court summed up things in this way. The fact that paper happens to belong to the fibrous kingdom did not invest Sawyer and Mann with sovereignty over this entire kingdom. The court returned to these principles in Holland Furniture. There, the evidence indicated that animal glue has properties that have long made it excellent for wood veneering. Seeking a substitute, Perkins Glue Company had developed and patented a starch glue similar enough to animal glue that craftsmen could also use it for wood veneering. Yet Perkins 
patent included a claim that went beyond the specific starch glue it manufactured. This claim covered all starch glue, which, when combined with about three parts or less by weight of water, will have substantially the same properties as animal glue. Perkins's specification instructed glue makers to choose a starch ingredient with such qualities that it would yield a product as good as animal glue for wood veneering when combined with three parts of water and with alkali. The court held this broad claim invalid for lack of enablement. The specification described the key input, the starch ingredient, in terms of its use or function rather than its physical characteristics or chemical properties. And that left glue makers in a bind. As the court put it, one attempting to use or avoid the use of Perkins' discovery as so claimed and described functionally could do so only after elaborate experimentation with different starches. To be sure, the court held, Perkins was entitled to its patent on the specific starch glue it had invented. The specification described that glue's characteristic ingredient with particularity. But just as Morse could not claim all means of telegraphic communication— and Sawyer and Mann could not claim all fibrous and textile materials for incandescence. Perkins could not claim all starch glues made from whatever starch happened to perform as well as animal glue. To hold otherwise, the court said, would extend the monopoly beyond the invention. Our decisions in Morse, Incandescent Lamp, and Holland Furniture reinforce the simple statutory command. If a patent claims an entire class of processes, machines, manufacturers, or compositions of matter, the patent's specification must enable a person skilled in the art to make and use the entire class. In other words, the specification must enable the full scope of the invention as defined by its claims. That is not to say a specification always must describe with particularity how to make and use every single embodiment within a claimed class. For instance, it may suffice to give an example or a few examples if the specification also discloses some general quality running through the class that gives it a peculiar fitness for the particular purpose. In some cases, disclosing that general quality may reliably enable a person skilled in the art to make and use all of what is claimed, not merely a subset. Nor is a specification necessarily inadequate just because it leaves the skilled artist to engage in some measure of adaptation or testing. In wood, a patent claimed a process for making bricks by mixing coal dust into clay. The patent included a general rule about the proportion of dust and clay to use and offered two alternative proportions where the clay has some peculiarity. The court upheld the claim, recognizing that some small difference in the proportions must occasionally be required given the varieties of clay. 
Similarly, in minerals separation, the court dismissed a challenge to a claimed process for separating metal from mineral ores. The record showed that preliminary tests were required to adapt the process to any particular ore. Once more, the court explained that the certainty which the law requires in patents is not greater than is reasonable, and because the composition of ores varies infinitely, it was impossible to specify in a patent the precise treatment which would be most successful and economical in each case. Decisions such as wood and minerals separation establish that a specification may call for a reasonable amount of experimentation to make and use a patented invention. What is reasonable in any case will depend on the nature of the invention and the underlying art. But in allowing that much tolerance, courts cannot detract from the basic statutory requirement that a patent specification describe the invention in such full, clear, concise, and exact terms as to enable any person skilled in the art to make and use the invention. Judges may no more subtract from the requirements for obtaining a patent that Congress has prescribed than they may add to them. Part 3 With these principles in mind, we return to claims 19 and 29 of the 165 patent and claim 7 of the 741 patent. In doing so, we do not doubt that Amgen's specification enables the 26 exemplary antibodies it identifies by their amino acid sequences. Even Sanofi concedes that description is enough to allow a person skilled in the art to make and use those embodiments. But the claims before us sweep much broader than those 26 antibodies and we agree with the lower courts that Amgen has failed to enable all that it has claimed, even allowing for a reasonable degree of experimentation. While the technology at the heart of this case is thoroughly modern, from the law's perspective, Amgen's claims bear more than a passing resemblance to those this court faced long ago in Morse, Incandescent Lamp, and Holland Furniture. Amgen seeks to monopolize an entire class of things defined by their function. Every antibody that both binds to particular areas of the sweet spot of PCSK9 and blocks PCSK9 from binding to LDL receptors. The record reflects that this class of antibodies does not include just the 26 that Amgen has described by their amino acid sequences, but a vast number of additional antibodies that it has not. Much as Morse sought to claim all telegraphic forms of communication, Sawyer and Mann sought to claim all fibrous and textile materials for incandescence, and Perkins sought to claim all starch glues that work as well as animal glue for wood veneering. Amgen seeks to claim sovereignty over an entire kingdom of antibodies. 
that poses Amgen with a challenge. For if our cases teach anything, it is that the more a party claims, the broader the monopoly it demands, the more it must enable. That holds true whether the case involves telegraphs devised in the 19th century, glues invented in the 20th, or antibody treatments developed in the 21st. To be fair, Amgen does not dispute this much. It freely admits that it seeks to claim for itself an entire universe of antibodies. Still, it says, its broad claims are enabled because scientists can make and use every undisclosed but functional antibody if they simply follow the company's roadmap or its proposal for conservative substitution. We cannot agree. These two approaches amount to little more than two research assignments. The first merely describes, step-by-step, Amgen's own trial-and-error method for finding functional antibodies, calling on scientists to create a wide range of candidate antibodies and then screen each to see which happened to bind to PCSK9 in the right place and block it from binding to LDL receptors. The second isn't much different. It requires scientists to make substitutions to the amino acid sequences of antibodies known to work and then test the resulting antibodies to see if they do too, an uncertain prospect given the state of the art. Whether methods like a roadmap or conservative substitution might suffice to enable other claims in other patents, perhaps because, as this court suggested in Incandescent Lamp, the inventor identifies a quality common to every functional embodiment. They do not hear. They leave a scientist about where Sawyer and Mann left Edison, forced to engage in painstaking experimentation to see what works. That is not enablement. More nearly, it is a hunting license. Think about it this way. Imagine a combination lock with 100 tumblers, each of which can be set to 20 different positions. Through trial and error, imagine that an inventor finds and discloses 26 different successful lock combinations. But imagine, too, that the inventor tries to claim much more, namely all successful combinations, while instructing others to randomly try a large set of combinations and then record the successful ones. Sure enough, that kind of roadmap would produce functional combinations, but it would not enable others to make and use functional combinations. It would instead leave them to random trial and error discovery. Like many analogies, this one may oversimplify a bit, but it captures the gist of the problem. Failing in its primary argument that it has enabled all of the antibodies it claims, Amgen tries a few alternative lines of attack. First, it suggests that the Federal Circuit erred by applying an enablement test unmoored from the statutory text. As Amgen sees it, 
that court conflated the question whether an invention is enabled with the question how long may it take a person skilled in the art to make every embodiment within a broad claim. We do not see it that way. While we agree with Amgen that enablement is not measured against the cumulative time and effort it takes to make every embodiment within a claim, we are not so sure the Federal Circuit thought otherwise. That court went out of its way to say that it does not hold that the effort required to exhaust a genus is dispositive. Instead, the court stressed, the problem it saw is the same problem we see. Amgen offers persons skilled in the art little more than advice to engage in trial and error. In any event, we review judgments of the lower courts, not statements in their opinions. Taking a similar tack, Amgen next argues that the Federal Circuit erroneously raised the bar for enablement of claims that, like Amgen's, encompass an entire genus of embodiments defined by their function. This is impermissible, Amgen argues, because the Patent Act provides a single universal enablement standard for all inventions. Here, too, we agree with Amgen in principle. There is one statutory enablement standard. But, once more, we do not understand the Federal Circuit to have thought differently. Instead, we understand that court to have recognized only that the more a party claims for itself, the more it must enable. As we have seen, that much is entirely consistent with Congress's directive and this court's precedents. Finally, Amgen warns that an affirmance risks destroying incentives for breakthrough inventions. But striking the proper balance between incentivizing inventors and ensuring the public receives the full benefit of their innovations is a policy judgment that belongs to Congress. Since 1790, Congress has included an enablement mandate as one feature among many designed to achieve the balance it wishes. Our only duty in this case lies in applying that mandate faithfully. Section 112 of the Patent Act reflects Congress's judgment that if an inventor claims a lot, but enables only a little, the public does not receive its benefit of the bargain. For more than 150 years, this court has enforced the statutory enablement requirement according to its terms. If the court had not done so in Incandescent Lamp, it might have been writing decisions like Holland Furniture in the dark. Today's case may involve a new technology, but the legal principle is the same. The judgment is affirmed. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, 
Thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.